Okay, so Gamarjobot, uh, that is hello in my native uh, Georgia. Welcome to Legere Out number six today. And we will be hosting um, uh, Brother Tony Baker, uh, Masonic author, uh, author uh, published on Lewis Masonic. And uh, we will discuss his book, Freemasonry, Material, Moral, and Mystical. So aiming at, the, at spreading the light further around the world and promoting acquisition of Gnosis through dedicated reading, Saperi Aude and Louis Masonic under the mutual initiative Legere Aude, which means in Latin dare to read, have the honor to host brother Tony Baker, who was born in uh, Welshpool, uh, Powys in 1953 and educated at uh, Shrewsbury School, Cambridge University, and St. Uh, Thomas Hospital. After training in uh, Leicester, uh, where he gained an MD, he moved to Bristol and practiced as a consultant, uh, vascular and general surgeon until he retired in November 2015. He was initiated in uh, Powys Lodge uh, in Welsh, uh, Welshpool in 1984 and was exalted in Walshpool chapter in 1986. He was Walshpool master of the St. Winston Lodge in Bristol in 1999 and first principal of Jerusalem chapter, again in Bristol in 2004. He's a great admirer of the Bristol, Bristol ritual in both the craft and the Royal Arch. In the craft, he served as a, a, a province um, senior grand warden in 2000 and was honored with the rank of uh, PAGDC in 2011 and PGD in 2018. In the Royal Arch, she was uh, third principal, grand principal in 2013 to 14. Second provincial, grand provincial principal, sorry, in 2016 to 17. And it was awarded the, the rank of uh, past Grand stand, uh, Standard BRI in 2015. He's uh, currently Provincial Grand Orator in Bristol. He holds Grand Ranks in uh, Grand Rank in Royal and Select Masters, Knights Templar Priests, and the Order of the Sec uh, Sacred Monitor. He has occupied the chair in the following degrees and the orders. Mark, Knights Templar, Rosecroft, Degree in um, Red Cross of Constantine, uh, Royal Ark Mariners and the Allied Masonic degrees. He has also reached uh, the fifth degree in the operatives and sixth degree in the SRIA. In the, in the Royal Order of Scotland, he was found in Provincial Senior Grand Warden of the province of uh, Gloucestershire, sorry for mispronunciation, and uh, was promoted to substitute Provincial Grandmaster in 2009 and Deputy Provincial uh, Grandmaster in 2015. He is a past master of the Lodge of Livingstone Stones in the province of uh, Yorkshire, West Riding, which was founded uh, by W.L. Uh, Wilmhurst. Um, and he's also a member of uh, the Masonic Study Society, which was founded by uh, Brother Ward and still meets in London. His main interest is in the interpretation of what the Masonic ceremonies might mean, what they might be interest, intended to teach us rather than the history of the origins and admiration of Freemasonry. 
Nonetheless, uh, he was elected a member of Patokoronati Lodge in 2006 and occupied the chair during 2012. He was president of the Bristol Masonic Society for two years, 2004 to six, uh, during uh, which time he began the publication of annual transactions of which he remains the editor. In 2020, he published a book entitled Freemasonry, Material, Moral and Mystical which was distilled out of many talks. He has given two lodges and chapters in Bristol and other promises over the period of 15 years. So it is our great pleasure to host him today here on Legere uh, Aude and Brother Martin will uh, present the book itself. I will briefly uh, remind everyone that Legere Aude is mutual um, project of Louis Masonic and Sapere Aude. And uh, we don't discuss uh, interjurisdictional uh, issues here. We don't discuss uh, religion and politics for religious or um, political purposes, respectively. And uh, we may tackle them if the um, topic that is being discussed needs to, to tackle some of these issues. Um, even though we may come from different jurisdictions we, and we may hold higher ranks in our jurisdictions, here we come as individual members, like-minded individual members that we do not represent our jurisdictions and the organizations we may be members of or be affiliated with. And everything that we share here, um, comments, questions, uh, or any opinions should be treated as our own personal individual ones and um, treated only like that. Uh, and those may not coincide with the, the official standpoints of our organizations at all. So uh, please keep that in mind. Sapere Aude uh, with Legere Aude um, here is uh, an international uh, public uh, educational uh, platform that welcomes male and female, members and non-members, everyone is welcome. And uh, the only thing that we request and require from the participants on Zoom is to express themselves in a civilized manner, whatever harsh question or comment they may have. So with that, it is my pleasure to Give the floor to Brother Martin. Brother Martin. Thank you very much, David. And it's, it's wonderful to be here to discuss this really inspiring book. You've heard how dedicated the author is to Freemasonry. You can, you can hear that he's done lots of different things and, and it really does uh, make great efforts towards the craft. So, you know, he's qualified to write this book and has a, a broad vision of many different practices and disciplines within Freemasonry. But I'd like to tell you why I believe that this book should be something that's read and encouraged. In order to allow you to to see this, the message, I, I'd like you to consider clicking on the link that I put in the chat so you can have a look at the, the cover of the book clearly and beautifully on your screen. The symbolism of that illustration on the cover, I don't think will escape anyone. If we look at the symbolism of craft Freemasonry, it's absolutely clear that 
our path is one of the harmony of opposites. The, the sun and the moon joining together, the two different sides of the body representing different aspects of ourselves. If you look at the different arts we practice, uh, the liberal arts um, lead us up a pathway of, of intellect and creativity. This symbolism of joining two pillars together to find a, a balance is very strong and very powerful. And we can all see why it's something we should alchemically aspire to. It's mysterious then, however, if you look at the history of Freemasonry, there's an ongoing recurring conflict between Freemasons, whereby there's always someone who believes that Freemasonry isn't strict enough and should be purely mystical and contemplative. And there's always someone who believes that uh, that point of view is completely incorrect and we should be focusing on charity and helping the world. There are many authors who are very excited about one position or another, and many brothers who really do get very inspired and directed towards promoting one of these points of view. This difference in opinion has become so strong at certain points that the Grand Lodge of England actually ended up split, or rather Freemasons in, in England, into two Grand Lodges. And you can see this happened in other uh, Masonic jurisdictions, whereby you have the, the esoteric philosophical Freemasons and those who are considered uh, to be more focused on material things in, uh, in conflict rather than working together. This hasn't gone away. Uh, I remember uh, many years back uh, when uh, the Lewis Masonic had its own magazine, someone sent a, a satirical picture which depicted two of the main leaders of uh, a certain Masonic organization in a boat. And it was saying that the Freemasons are working really hard to paddle the ship and paddle the boat together. And they're facing the opposite ways, paddling really hard in the middle of a, a lake. People are very interested in extremes. And because of that, most books tend to be written from one side or the other. It's a rare and beautiful thing where we see a integrated, balanced view where all things are, are one, where Freemasonry is the alpha to the omega. Most philosophies, especially the ones that are very inspiring to Freemasonry, do have this position and they, they balance the material and the spiritual. They, they say that as above is so below or nowhere exists a vacuum in the Rosicrucian texts. The Eleatic schools say it's either all real or it's all false. You've got to make up your mind. Brother Baker's work is such a vision of balance. And when I uh, saw it, I thought this could be healing for us as an organization. This could allow us to have our feet on the ground, but looking at the stars. 
to aspire to higher philosophy without neglecting our, our duties to do well in the world. Look again at that cover and see how each one of these doorways go beyond another. It's showing that all levels must be respected if you want to want to walk all the way through. So with that recommendation, it is my honour to hand over to the author, who's going to tell you a little bit about uh, this philosophy, as much as he can get into this, uh, the, the time we've given him. And I'm sure you're going to find it inspiring and interesting, just as I found his, his work. Um, okay, <clears throat> I'll just uh, share the screen then. I'm hoping you can see that now. Yes, it's coming. Yeah, I confirm. Excellent. Okay, well, <clears throat> well, um, thank you very much for that introduction, Martin. I, I must say, if I'd if I'd heard it before um, before putting this talk together, I might have emphasised the balance a little bit more than than I have. I think at the end of this, you might think I've emphasise the one side a little bit too much from the um, introduction point of view. Um, uh, as you said, uh, or somebody said, I'm, oh, that didn't work very well, did it? Uh, I'm, I'm a Bristol Mason and, um, uh, and I love the rituals and ceremonies of Freemasonry in almost all its orders and degrees. Um, but the first thing I want to just emphasize is, is that this talk really is just my opinion, firmly held, but just mine. And I certainly don't mean to imply that I think anyone else's opinion is, is wrong. The trouble is though, that the um, male only United Grand Lodge of England tells us all the time that there's no spirituality in Freemasonry and no real secrets that masonry is just a private club with social and charitable aims, merely a hobby. Now, I disagree fundamentally and passionately with these messages, and, and that's why I wrote this book. Um, referring to Freemasonry as a hobby really diminishes it to the ranks of a pastime, something to fill empty hours. We often hear Freemasonry described as a journey, but where are we going? Where's it taking us? It can be seen as a journey, but, but in my view, it'd be more accurate to describe Freemasonry as a way of life. It should be an inspiration in everything that a Mason does in life. And in writing the book, what I wanted to do is just to provide a few pointers towards a deeper view and to ask my brethren to think about it. It seems to me that a lot of young men with spiritual hunger are joining us now because they've heard usually on the internet or in the books of Dan Brown that masonry can help them wrestle with the great questions of life. They hope that they might get some teaching of value to a modern man. But when they've taken their three craft degrees, they find it difficult to make any sense of the system or to see anything in our order which might help them. They ask one or two senior members of their lodges for help, but often they get no useful answers. So they become disillusioned and leave. And who'd be surprised if they then tell anyone who'll listen 
that Freemasonry has no secrets worth having. The trouble is that most of our brethren can't tell you what purpose Freemasonry might actually serve in the modern world. They know they enjoy it, but they can't tell you what it's for, what the real secrets of Freemasonry might be. Now, in my view, the ceremonies of the craft and royal arch are not meaningless artificial complexity, just archaic memory tests, little plays that we run through before sitting down to our fine social dinners. In my view, they have profound messages of the greatest importance. Now, many Masonic papers and books give explanations of individual symbols, objects, actions, words and phrases used within the lodge room. But I'm not interested in dissecting Freemasonry in this way. My approach in this book is to consider the four ceremonies of the craft and Royal Arch together as one basic but complete allegorical journey. And my aim is to stimulate thought about this basic journey in the craft and Royal Arch, to call attention to the spiritual path concealed within the system, its mystical message. This book is for those Freemasons who hear the ritual whispering to them. They know that it's got something of value to teach them, but they can't quite hear its messages. The true Freemason seeking enlightenment and understanding and comes to appreciate quite early on that the modes of recognition are not the real or genuine secrets of Freemasonry. They're merely substituted secrets. But what are the genuine secrets then? It'll become apparent that the real secrets of Freemasonry cannot be revealed. They may, however, be experienced and shared in a Masonic Lodge. So the book itself is divided into two parts, and part one deals with issues of a general nature on which any deep interpretation of Freemasonry has to be founded. What's Freemasonry for? What does it teach? Why does it demand secrecy? What does it mean by truth? It looks at parables in the ceremonies and asks, why do we have to believe in God? Now, I just want to say uh, a couple of words about one or two of these. So first of all, what's Freemasonry for? Um, if a hundred Freemasons were asked what Freemasonry is for, their answers would fall into these four main groups. Uh, so fellowship, morality, charity that Martin mentioned, and something deeper. Now this something deeper is usually ill-defined. It'd be the least common group of answers, but it's the category that I'm most interested in. Before we look at it though, let's just look quickly at the other three types of answer. First of all, fellowship. <clears throat> Masonry certainly is about fellowship, but it can't just be about fellowship. Ritual and ceremony are not at all necessary for fellowship, but it's the rituals and ceremonies that make what we do Freemasonry. They must surely be adding something else to the fellowship 
that we all find in our lodges. What about morality? It's often said that Freemasonry is mainly about morality. We hear that masonry is a peculiar system of morality so often that the words roll off the tongue without us even thinking about what they really mean. We often hear that its main purpose is to make good men better. But when you think about it, why would we need masonry to teach morality? Have Freemasons forgotten the basic lessons their parents, their school and their church taught them? do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Freemasonry certainly does emphasize morality, but in my view, its main purpose is much deeper than this. Anyway, the questions before passing tell us that we're supposed to possess a high level of such a basic morality before we can be initiated, before we can even become Freemasons. Who are fit and proper persons to be made masons? Just upright and free men of mature age, sound judgment and strict morality. We should, there already, should therefore already have strict morals before we can be made masons. So why would Freemasonry need to teach a basic morality again behind closed and guarded doors? It doesn't make any sense and, it, and it's very hard to believe that the great brotherhood of Freemasonry was set up and has survived for more than 300 years just to teach the same basic morality taught in every home, every school and every church across the world. What about charity then? Well the official view uh, these days, in this country anyway, seems to be that the main purpose of Freemasonry is charity raising money for good causes. Well, Freemasonry certainly is a charitable organization. It does a lot in the fields of charity. Nonetheless, charity cannot be the prime purpose of Freemasonry either. After all, you can donate money to any cause you choose, either online or on the telephone. You don't need Freemasonry to do that. Again, however, Charity is not something that's taught in masonry. Candidates are tested during the initiation ceremony to see whether there's charity in their hearts before they can become masons. In the first degree charity test, candidates are all examined to see whether they already are the stuff that a true Freemason could be made of. Okay, so now we come on to that something deeper. So I would say that all Freemasons would agree that they get fellowship, morality and charity out of Masonry. But there must be something more. The rituals must mean something. Now I've been a Mason now for 37 years and to begin with, after I'd been initiated, I sat on the sidelines and observed the ceremonies. And to begin with, Freemasonry appeared to me to be a straightforward system of moral instruction, as I suspect it did for many of you. It presented itself as a traditional system, an archaic relic of the past. As I listened and watched though, I realized that the Masonic ritual was whispering to me at a very deep level, which to start with at least I didn't really understand. A deeper level of meaning 
began to creep up on me and I gradually came to understand that its true purpose is much more profound than simple moral instruction. And it then became my task to listen more carefully and to try to work out what it was that Freemasonry was saying to me that seemed on the one hand to be so important, but on the other hand, so difficult to grasp. Now, not everyone joining a lodge will have this experience, but as Christ said after telling that parable of the sower, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Freemasonry speaks particularly to those who feel a sense of incompleteness, that something's missing in their being. They have a hunger for something that's lost, and it hints that its members can be made whole. It, it provides clues as to where and how to look for that which is lost. Although this missing thing cannot be described, it is possible to get some idea of the shape of the whole left by what's been lost, so that at least the outline of what needs to be found can be appreciated. But Freemasons must find what will fill that hole adequately for themselves and experience it in order to make it truly a part of themselves. The real secrets of the Masonic system then have to be experienced rather than being communicated or given to you. Freemasons are taught to look beyond the surface of life, beyond the veil of material things both within the Lodge and also in the outside world. In this way, every story, every myth and every legend becomes a parable, relating an aspect of the eternal fundamental truth underlying all things. So it is that Masonry helps its members to wrestle with the great questions in life. Who am I? What am I doing here? Is this material universe all that there is? Is there anything after this life? Surely everyone has asked themselves such questions, even if it's only in those moments of the deepest sadness and despair. Freemasonry then is a way of life. And finding the answers to these great questions of life through Freemasonry is a spiritual journey, which can transform its members and their approach to the whole of their lives. The journey Freemasons embark upon is not a solitary one though, they don't have to search for the answers to their questions alone. Masonry gives us travelling companions to provide fellowship and support in our search. How does Freemasonry teach? Well, the Masonic ritual tells us in no uncertain terms that it has a deeper meaning. And I'm thinking here about this question, one of the questions before passing. What is Freemasonry? And the answer, of course, is a peculiar system of morality veiled in allegory and illustrated by symbols. Again, it rolls off the tongue without you even thinking about it. But let's just take a look at those two phrases. First of all, veiled in allegory. This is telling us that the surface meaning we get from the rituals and symbols of Freemasonry is definitely not the real message. 
it can't be the real message because the real message is veiled in allegory. This answer to the question, what is Freemasonry, is unequivocally stating that the real meaning is veiled, hidden below the surface. Well, the social aspects aren't hidden. The basic morality is perfectly obvious on the surface and the charitable aspects are plain to see. Clearly, therefore, none of these can be the real message that Freemasonry is intended to convey. Surely no one could argue with this. There must be a deeper hidden meaning. This ritual answer to the question, what is Freemasonry, is telling us this in the clearest imaginable terms. And then illustrated by symbols. Why do we use symbols at all? Why use one thing when we really mean another? Why don't we just plainly say what we mean about the subject we're actually dealing with? Surely it's because we're not just talking about fellowship, basic morality and charity. It's very easy to talk about all of them in ordinary everyday words. The fact that we need to use symbols at all is powerful evidence that Freemasonry is dealing with concepts much, much deeper than all of this. So just a quick word then about why a Freemason must believe in God. As I've said, the true Mason is a seeker, one who feels a sense of something missing, one who's come to realize that he's not complete and so is on a quest searching for that which is lost. Freemasons should be trying to redress this loss, to perfect themselves by following the way of the craft and royal arch. And many would argue that this is the same way as that of the ancient mystery schools, whose aim was to know thyself. In my view, Masons are on a quest for knowledge of God and union with God and come to Freemasonry to try and comprehend through the use of symbols what God really is. This is the reason why a belief in the Supreme Being is essential in a Mason. It's because the whole purpose of Freemasonry is to appreciate the true nature of yourself and to get closer to that Supreme Being, both individually and collectively to build a temple for his dwelling, that house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In my view, each of us can, if you like, touch the finger of God deep within ourselves. In Freemasonry, we're embarking on an inward journey to the center rather than setting off on some outward pilgrimage to a place of some religious significance. Freemasonry is a system in which men of any religion can approach the great architect of the universe. He is the point within a circle. The supreme being is the center and we are all on the circumference. The different ways we can approach the center are the different radii of that circle. We're all aiming for God in the center and whichever radius you choose to follow, Freemasonry will help you along the way. Whichever denomination or religion or faith 
you belong to. Freemasonry will help you move along your chosen radius towards that all-important centre. If, however, you don't believe in the Supreme Being, you have no centre to move towards. And in my view, there, there's very little purpose in your being a Freemason at all. Part two goes on to consider three main layers or levels of meaning and, and examines these four degree ceremonies of the craft and royal arch from this point of view. So it looks at layers of meaning, as I say, and the key to the mystical level of interpretation which uh, appears first in the second degree. And then it moves on to interpret the third degree and the Royal Arch. So any Masonic ritual uh, or ceremony can, in my view, should actually be interpreted at several different levels. And there are three main levels that I want to concentrate on and I've called them material, moral, and mystical. Now, by the material level, I mean the straightforward literal sense of what the words mean. In this sense, the stories of the rituals are historical about the lives and work of journeying operative stonemasons who had to protect their trade secrets and demonstrate their experience by signs, grips, and words. This level's about the origin of the customs and practices used in our ceremonies. And it may be interesting from this historical point of view, but it's of no real relevance to our lives in the 21st century. The second degree working tools provide a good example of this material level when it says, the square is to try and adjust rectangular corners of buildings, the level to lay levels and prove horizontals, and the plumb rule to try and adjust uprights while fixing them on their proper bases. These words say what they mean, and there's absolutely no hint that they might mean anything more. The whole of the charge after initiation works uh, at this level. By the moral level or intellectual level, I mean the straightforward moral interpretation that's easy to see and is often spelled out in the ceremonies. The moral level is the one at which Freemasonry makes good men better. And our Grand Lodge seems to be particularly keen these days on the link at this level to the motive of charity. Again, the uh, ritual of the second degree working tools goes on to provide a good example of this level when it says in this sense, the square teaches morality, the level equality, and the plumb rule justness and uprightness of life and actions. And the whole idea of turning a rough ashlar into a perfect one using the working tools of the first degree, the common gavel being the force of conscience and the chisel representing education, and then checking how perfect it is with the second degree tools and relating all of this to the perfecting of yourself operates at this straightforward moral level. The interpretation is given in the ritual and there's no need to make any real mental effort to work the message out. By the mystical level though, I'm referring to a much deeper level of meaning 
which is implied but not obviously given in the words of the rituals or the actions of the ceremonies themselves. Freemasons have to think individually about the meaning at this level, to work it out for themselves. Now, by mystical, I, I don't mean anything deeply religious in the ordinary sense of that word. This level is more difficult to talk about, and our Grand Lodge tells us that it doesn't even exist. But in my view, it's the most important level of interpretation because it lets us into what I believe is the real purpose of Freemasonry. For me, this is what Freemasonry is all about. But how do we go about lifting the lid on this level of interpretation? This mystical level isn't as obvious in the first degree as it becomes in the subsequent ones. As a Mason progresses through the second and third degrees, and then goes on to um, exaltation in the Royal Arch, this level of meaning becomes more and more obvious until it dominates over the other two levels in both the third degree and the exaltation ceremonies. Nonetheless, it may not become apparent to some Master Masons after their third degree or even to many companions after exaltation when they've completed the system of what's now called pure ancient Freemasonry. It's a layer of interpretation that many Masonic authors of distinction maintain isn't there and was never intended to be. But I simply cannot agree. I'm convinced that it is actually the prime purpose of the whole Masonic system. In talking about this level, it's important to cut that word esoteric down to size. It frightens a lot of people because they translate it as meaning just for nutters. It's, it's the same with the word occult, which only means hidden. Esoteric really means for the initiated, for those in the know. And in Masonry, that means Freemasons, you and me. The esoteric interpretation of Freemasonry is the interpretation that we Masons are supposed to get. It's hidden behind the literal interpretation, which is all that the uninformed popular world is supposed to get. The question is, do Freemasons get the deeper meaning which is intended only for them? I'm sorry to say that it seems to me that the majority of the male-only English variety anyway don't. So let's, let's have a look at the ceremonies themselves. The first degree, in, in my view, is an introductory degree. It's where the new Freemason is first exposed to the use of Masonic symbolism. It implies that there's something deeper to come as you progress through the rest of the degrees, but it doesn't teach much at a deeper level itself. The first degree asks you to blind your eyes, bare your heart and soul, and tile your mind from outside distracting influences. It requires great self-control, and then the inner work can begin. 
As well as developing the basic levels of the first degree, the second degree goes on to introduce some concepts which it doesn't do a lot to explain. It tells its candidates that when they've done enough work to become qualified, they can hope to ascend the winding staircase which leads to the middle chamber. And it turns out in the questions before raising that this is where Freemasons might expect to receive their wages. But nowhere are we told exactly what is meant by wages. Secondly, we're introduced to the concept of the centre, the centre of a building. And most importantly, we find the letter G representing God, the grand geometrician of the universe in that centre. At this point, we should be saying, hang on a minute. This has got absolutely nothing to do with building in stone. What on earth's going on here? Well, the answer is that we're being introduced to a deeper level of symbolism, the mystical level. This is the first time that a Freemasonry, that a Freemason, sorry, gets a hint that there's something more to Masonry than brotherly love and relief. The first hint of what might be meant by Masonic truth. So in present day English speculative Freemasonry, it's not until reaching the closing of the second degree that the candidate's given a clue that the signs, tokens and words are actually not the real secrets of Masonry. Unfortunately, that clue is all too easy to miss. The key to this mystical level isn't difficult to describe, but it is quite difficult to turn. So what exactly is that key? Well, Freemasonry is the science of symbolism. Everything in Masonry can be looked upon as a symbol. Even the name Freemason or Mason is symbolic. It shouldn't be interpreted literally. Literally, Freemasonry or a Freemason means a builder in stone. But modern day speculative Masons aren't building in stone. The working tools in all three degrees remind us that we are not all operative Masons, but rather free and accepted or speculative Masons. What we are building is ourselves. And if we liken the building of ourselves to the construction of a stone building, such as a house, then it should come as no surprise that any building mentioned in a Masonic ritual is meant, at least at one level, to represent yourself. So, whenever a Masonic ritual talks of a building, whether it's complete or remains unfinished, Whenever a ceremony mentions a lodge, a room, a chamber, or even a vault, the building referred to and that space inside it is at least at one level meant to represent the self of each Freemason. Most importantly, this applies to the lodge room and all that goes on inside it. All the objects in the lodge, all the officers, their actions and their words, represent the structure 
and workings of the Freemason self. This concept is the core idea of the book and, and its application may well change your whole appreciation of Freemasonry. If you look at any Masonic ceremony with this idea in mind, it will give you a completely different take on the meaning of that ceremony. If you apply it to your own favourite Masonic degree, whatever it is, Mark, Royal Art, Mariners, Knights, Temper, any of them, it'll open up a whole new layer of meaning for you. Don't just believe me, please, just give it a try. Throughout the rituals and ceremonies of Freemasonry, therefore, the references made to the lodge aren't just supposed to mean the building in which we meet. That building itself is intended to be a symbol, a veil of allegory concealing something else. St Paul wrote, know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. The real lodge referred to throughout Masonic rituals represents our own individual personalities, ourselves. Each of us is therefore encouraged to consider the structure of himself, the makeup of his own self, no longer observed from without, like looking in a mirror, but now observed from within. So armed with the information that the lodge room represents the self of each mason, we can approach the interpretation of the second degree and its more complex concepts at a deeper level, the mystical level. And at the mystical level, the middle chamber wasn't a part of King Solomon's temple or indeed of any other building. It's a part of each one of us. The middle chamber is deep within you, the seat of your conscience, that place where you listen to the still, small voice of calm, the point within a circle, the centre. What wages might a fellow craft expect to receive without scruple or diffidence if he managed to get to the middle chamber of his own self? The climax of the emulation explanation of the second degree tracing board tells us that when our ancient brethren were in the middle chamber, their attention was particularly drawn to certain Hebrew characters, which are here depicted by the letter G. And at that point, the master and the two wardens all gavel, denoting God, whereupon everyone stands with a sign of reverence and the second degree ceremony comes to an abrupt end. This has got nothing to do with building in stone. So what does it mean? It's a profound spiritual truth that we're being made aware of. We're being told that the divine principle resides within us. Freemasonry teaches that the great architect of the universe, who once dwelt in King Solomon's temple, dwells today in that temple's true successor, the heart and soul of man. The real avenue to contact with the divine is therefore not outside ourselves, but within us, at the centre of each of us. The significance of that letter G in its position is confirmed again during the closing of a fellow craft lodge, when the worshipful master asks the junior warden what he's discovered. The answer is a sacred symbol, that letter G, obviously. 
and the senior warden tells him that it's situated in the centre of the building. The junior warden then goes on to say that it alludes to the grand geometrician of the universe, to God. Clearly, it's not just the discovery of a design, a letter on the centre of some ceiling that's so important. It is, after all, a symbol. But what does it mean? Remember, we're not building in stone, we're building ourselves. And we're supposed to appreciate that the building we're talking about represents ourselves. So the moment of finding that symbol in the centre of the building of ourselves should be a vivid realisation of a profound spiritual truth, an appreciation of the divine at the very centre of each of us. Many years ago, Professor Max Muller translated a legend from the ancient East. It told of a council of the gods which was called to discuss where they should hide man's divinity. One suggested that it should be carried to the other side of the earth and buried, but it was pointed out that man's a great explorer and that he might find the lost treasure on the other side of the earth. Another proposed that it should be dropped into the depths of the deepest ocean, but the same fear was expressed that man in his insatiable curiosity might dive deep enough one day to find it even there. Finally, after a long silence, the oldest and wisest of the gods said, let's hide it deep within man himself. He'll never even think to look for it there. And it was so agreed, all seeing at once the wise and subtle strategy. Brethren, if the lodge room and the building referred to in our ceremonies is at one level meant to represent ourselves, it seems to me that the Masonic ceremonies are giving us exactly the same message as that parable from the ancient East. And if this is the case, it should hardly surprise us that in the closing of a fellow craft lodge, immediately after he's been told that the sacred symbols in the center of the building and that it re represents God, immediately after this, the worshipful master says, then brethren, let us remember that wherever we are and whatever we do, he is with us and his all seeing eye observes us. The rituals telling us that he, God, is within us. What we're looking for is what's doing the looking, the seeing, the watching. What an introduction to a deeper level of meaning. It's then in the third degree that we're told and vividly told that there is a vital and immortal principle within us. The whole of the raising ceremony is a powerful demonstration of this fact, but we're then returned to the companions of our former toil. We return to our previous lives with this amazing piece of knowledge, a new understanding. And with this new understanding of what we are, what we're for and where we're going, of the very significance of life itself, we return to the mundane everyday world. This is not only a pre-enactment of our own inevitable physical death, 
it can also be seen as the death of the old ignorant self, which is now replaced by the new enlightened self. This is what the mystics of old referred to as the mystical death of the self. The charge in the third degree guides your reflections to that most interesting of all human studies, the knowledge of yourself. Know thyself, as was written over the entrance to the temple of Apollo at Delphi, the house of the Delphic mysteries. This is how Freemasonry teaches you the knowledge of yourself. It's also interesting, I think, to note that the three instruments by which Hiram Abiff is slain are the plum rule, the level, and the heavy setting maul. These are the instruments used by an operative stonemason to set a stone, a perfect ashlar, if you like, in its place in a wall during the construction of a building. In this way, the death of the third degree can be seen to represent the loss of individuality consequent upon merging into the group, the death of the self in uniting with the one. No matter how perfect you succeed in making your own individual ashlar, you cannot build a temple or anything else for that matter with a single stone. Masonry doesn't shout this message aloud, but it's very important that each Mason realizes that Although Freemasonry teaches us to work on ourselves as individual stones, and we can do this every day on our own, wherever we are and whatever we're doing, the final or main aim is to build a temple for God, the temple of humanity. We cannot do this alone. We have to do it together. That's why we need to meet in our lodges and chapters. So why is exaltation in the Royal Arch necessary? Well, the aim in the third degree was to seek for that which was lost. The three ruffians were trying to obtain the genuine secrets of a master mason from our Grand Master Hiram Abiff, who could not reveal them. And similarly, the candidate didn't receive the genuine secrets either. He was just fobbed off with another step a few signs, a grip, and another couple of words. At least the third degree tells the candidate that these are not the real secrets, just substituted ones. In the closing of a Master Mason's Lodge then, we admit that we failed in our quest. The genuine secrets still haven't been found. We've only come away with a few more substituted ones. Clearly, the search must go on, but where should we look next? Now, at first glance, the Royal Arch looks like a separate order from the craft, but this is really just the result of an accident of history. In fact, the Royal Arch is essential to craft masonry. The third degree doesn't make any sense without it. There are many other degrees and orders in Freemasonry, which are often referred to as higher degrees. Most of them, though, just illustrate or expand lessons which are included in the craft and Royal Arch. These degrees are not essential to the basic allegorical Masonic journey. 
The important thing to realize, however, is that the Royal Arch is certainly not one of those extra degrees. It's essential. The basic allegorical Masonic journey is made up of the three degrees of the craft together with exaltation in the Holy Royal Arch. All four of these steps, in my view, are essential to make sense of the deeper message. The Masonic system actually follows the three basic steps of the ancient mystery school, or schools. Purification in the first degree, education or illumination in the second, and union, meaning union with God, in the third. This last step of union, however, is interrupted at the end of our craft third degree and only completed in the Royal Arch. The Royal Arch gives Freemasons the opportunity to find the genuine secrets of a Master Mason. The problem is that the three degrees of the craft are progressively more difficult to interpret and understand, and the Royal Arch is more difficult again. And the genuine secrets aren't just presented to the candidate on a plate in the Royal Arch, a Freemason has to work for them, just as anyone has to for anything in this world that's really worth having. I mean, at the material level, the Royal Arch is little more than the story of a lucky archaeological find. And that's why it's difficult to connect it meaningfully to the craft. It's at this material level that one hears some brethren say that the rituals of the order of the Royal and Select Masters fit in between the third degree and the Royal Arch and help to make sense of, of the exaltation ceremony. But it's only at this material level of a literal legendary or mythical history that they do so. It's also interesting to note that the exaltation ceremony doesn't have much to communicate on a moral level either. It ought perhaps to come as a bit of a surprise to those who believe that the main purpose of Freemasonry is to teach morality, that the ceremony, which is said to be the root, heart and marrow of Freemasonry, the exaltation ceremony, contains almost no moral teaching at all. Now, I'm not sure how many of you are in the Royal Arch, so I'm only going to give you the vaguest hints here because I don't want to spoil anything for any of you who go on to take that step. But it's not until we get into the Royal Arch that we find out what the genuine secrets of a Master Mason might be and the goal of our basic allegorical Masonic journey can be seen. This is where we get down deep down into the depths of ourself and conclude that basic journey. The first temple, King Solomon's temple, that was being built in the third degree, represents our first attempt to construct something that we might have been proud of. The trouble was that its construction happened while we were concentrating on other things. We didn't really notice what was happening and the result isn't quite what we might have hoped for. That's why we've become Freemasons. Something's missing, lost. 
that masonry is giving us a second chance. But that first attempt, the first temple, must be cleared away before we can start again. And in doing this, something of enormous value is found deep down. Something that's been forgotten is hidden in the depths of our foundations, our fundamental being. It's now discovered and must be brought back to its rightful place at the surface, the surface representing consciousness, the forefront of our character and personality. Now, although the things that the candidate discovers are obviously important in that they represent or symbolize basic concepts, what I want to emphasize is that where they're found is also of fundamental symbolic importance. But I'm, I'm not gonna say any more about that. So to summarize then, the craft ritual in the first degree introduces us to the world of Freemasonry and how to make use of symbols, allegories, and parables. The second degree develops these ideas and goes on to introduce the middle chamber, which we can approach by the winding staircase, and the sacred symbol, which represents God in the center of the building, the building that represents ourself. The third degree tells us that the genuine secrets are to be found again in the center, which is now described as that point within. And later it tells us that within each of our perishable frames, there exists an immortal principle. The Royal Art shows us how and where to find those genuine secrets and complete the basic allegorical Masonic journey. I ask you, could a deeper message be any clearer? Now, I just want to emphasize that merely reading or hearing the words in the third degree raising, which tell us that a vital and immortal principle resides within us, doesn't actually allow us to know this truth. Similarly, finding the symbols in the Royal Arch Exaltation Ceremony doesn't equate to discovering what they represent within ourselves. We attend our lodge and chapter meetings, we listen to and take part in the ceremonies, we hear the words over and over again. But just because we keep saying that there's a divine spark within, within each of us doesn't by itself make it real for us. We must experience it convincingly for ourselves. No matter how much we want it to be true, it won't be realized as truth for each of us until we've each had that experience ourselves. It's one thing merely to believe in God and another thing entirely to have a direct knowledge of God. The ordinary follower of a religious faith believes in the existence of God. The mystic, however, has had a direct experience of his presence and of uniting with him. And it's this direct experience which I believe Freemasonry points to in its mystical interpretation. So what we do in our lodges and chapters, acting out our rituals and ceremonies is not, 
in my view, the end and purpose of Freemasonry. Performing a ceremony is a ritual external act, which symbolically represents real internal spiritual work. Having performed the ritual, we then have to go on to do the inner work it represents inside ourselves. All our work in Freemasonry should be done in these two parts. The first part is done in our lodges and chapters in performing our rituals and ceremonies. We do this together in fellowship. And as the ritual says, may heaven aid our united endeavors. But this doesn't complete the work. The task is not finished. The fundamental aim of the Masonic system, in my view, is not fulfilled. The second part's done by thinking and reflecting on the lessons we've been taught in order to make them a part of ourselves and our lives from here on in. This part is solitary work done alone after we've gone home. Much of the work we do on ourselves, we must of course do on our own. It's individual interior labor, but we can't dispense with coming together in our lodges and chapters. In Freemasonry, we're taught that both these kinds of work are important and that they're interlinked. Each depends on the other, and we must concentrate on both if we're to progress. In the end, we must each lose our separate selves in the lodge and chapter. We'll then come to realize that we're not all separate little selves. On the contrary, we are all one in God, for in Him we live and move and have our being. The hermit and the monk aspire to unite with the Godhead on their own. But Freemasonry teaches us that we must unite with each other before we can hope to achieve union with God. We come together in our lodges and chapters with our brethren and companions in an atmosphere of in intimacy, confidence, and complete trust. This is brotherly love. We are sure of each other's support as we all try to achieve this same end together, even though we may be at different points along each of our chosen paths. We share the same sacred space and engage in the same task. We come together as living stones and the more perfectly square we fashioned our perfect ashlars when striving alone, the closer we can get to one another and the thinner will be the layer of cement required to unite us all into one common mass. There should be no doubt no anxiety, no antipathy. There should only be harmony and brotherly love. A Masonic lodge or chapter is a place for fraternal love where we can learn to love one another and so develop a greater love for God. The Freemason who works towards these aims alone and in company with other brethren and companions becomes a better person simply by virtue of making the sustained effort masonry requires. A mason's interactions with other people, both masons and non-masons, are improved. The quality of all interpersonal relationships gets better. In this way, individual Freemasons working continuously on themselves as individuals benefit their families, their communities, and the whole of the society. 
But what of those who can't hear these deeper messages in masonry and those who don't even believe that they're there to be found? And I know there are a lot of them. To those brethren, I say, keep coming. Enjoy the surface layers of masonry. Take pleasure in the fellowship, morality and charity promoted by Freemasonry. But please don't tell those of us who wish to plumb the depths that there are no depths to be plumbed. If you're happy up there in the shallow end of the pool, paddling around and pretending that's all there is to Freemasonry, that's fine. If, however, you want to take the risk of opening your soul to a little enlightenment, then come on down to the deep end and swim. There's much, much more to be discovered in Freemasonry down here. So, Brethren of Lagari Audi, read my book if you dare. Brethren, thank you for listening to me. Thank you so much. Uh, and Brother Martin will take over. And for, I will just announce that for those who are watching on YouTube, it's like 18, 19 uh, viewers. Please use the chat room to share your questions and comments, and I will uh, pick them up uh, in a due manner. Brother Martin, the floor is yours. What a fantastically inspiring talk that was, Tony. I thought that was really wonderful. And for me, one of the, the great benefits of the great contemplation of masonry is when you have those aha moments when someone says something and wow, you think, yeah, I've, I've, that's a new layer of meaning. And sometimes that can be from uh, someone saying something you really agree with, or sometimes it can be something that you're not sure about, but it makes you, makes you think. Uh, so I think that's very much in line of the, the path you're outlining. So, Tony, this is the, the publisher's uh, I get to ask you questions before we, uh, we, we let the floor open and uh, allow others to do so. So first and foremost, I was intrigued when I, when I heard some of the things you were saying. I thought, wow, how beautiful. A, a whole system of contemplation whereby the, the, the lodge room, the temple, is you. And when, when you said that, it seemed like so obvious that actually the original, well, not the, the early uh, Masons under our, our system would most certainly see that obviously. It'd be so, it'd be so obvious they wouldn't need to keep saying it. Mm. You know, the, all their references to building the spiritual temple and so on, that was, that was so beautiful. I found myself thinking, where, where, where would this come from? Um, is it evolved? Is it created? Uh, the idea of something so eloquently put and so specifically laid out with those layers of symbolism. So I'd like, I know history and research of history is a thing you do, and it, but secondary to actually doing it. But I want to know, where do you think this, this system came from? Uh, was it an individual? Has it evolved? Uh, what, what are your thoughts? I think actually in the um, 15th and 
16th centuries, the tendency to moralize on the things that you were doing during the day was really, really widespread. So I think that the craftsmen in many, many different professions moralized on their working tools. You only have to go to the um, Museum of the Campagnonage in Tours in northern France, for instance, to see this. You know, you can see uh, that the basket weavers and the cord wainers and, you know, all sorts of different trades had this same tendency to moralize on, on their tools. And so for me, the question is not how it came about so much as why it is that Freemasonry has survived and all of those have gone. I mean, perhaps the free gardeners were the last group to, uh, to go, perhaps. And, and, and I think that the Freemasons survived where others didn't. I think the reason is probably because Freemasons actually build something that you can then get inside, you can live inside. And, and so the structure that they built you know, even if it's just a house, is very easily open to symbolic interpretation. And I mean, you know, you only have to look at oh, encyclopedias of dreams that um, I know they may not be very scientific, but um, they show that, that, that a house is a very common symbol in dreams, that a, a partly open door with light coming through it, you know, might represent uh, an opportunity that if you pass it by you're going to miss or you know and that the, the the loft that's all sort of full of junk might be your higher spiritual levels and, and so on so i i think i think it, it's that masonry survived where other things have have not survived hmm. wonderful and um, you make me think that there's a section in the emulation lectures which is an adapted version of a comment on Vitruvius. And it, it's absolutely beautifully eloquent and, and wonderfully symbolic. It's, uh, what it's saying is, if you want to come out of Plato's cave, you need somewhere new to live. And that made me smile, you know, the idea that you've got to learn to build if you want to come out of the cave and see the truth. I thought that you could, because you have to live in a new place. It was really wonderful. See what's casting the shadows on the back. Yes. Um, the next thing I found myself thinking was, you, you mentioned that this is a universal path. And we certainly can see that these kind of symbols seem to appear in many different countries and cultures, you know, through from Confucian uh, use of the compasses and the square, to Mayan you know, symbolism. So it seems to be something about these symbols. I, I believe that most Egyptian mummies have a, a square over their heart to represent Ma'at, you know. Um, but do you think this is universal? Do you think there's anyone or any religion or, or, or discipline that would actually find these symbols are so culturally different or that, that, that it would be tough for them to, to adapt or to, to fully utilize this path? No, I, I think it's, uh, it's basically, I think Freemasonry is expressing a fundamental truth of, of the structure of creation and, and of life. 
And um, I, I don't think Freemasonry has a monopoly on this at all. I mean, I think there are other systems that promote a similar path, such as meditation, for instance, or yoga. I think, you know, I think there are, but it's, it's a fundamental truth. No, I, I think that it's, it's, it's for everybody. Mm. Okay, final question. Most paths, you've talked about yoga or, uh, you know, the meditation, would have a clearly defined definition of where you're going. So I could give you Buddhist documents to have the marks of a, a Buddha. In Christianity, there are the qualities of a saint, this kind of thing. A lot of people have a, the, the dream of what that, that mystical experience would bring around. In Freemasonry, we have some ideas of it. You know, where the, the person's going to achieve some kind of eudaimonia, some true happiness, this mm. kind of stuff. But I'd like to hear your vision, uh, if you're happy sharing it. If someone did it, someone who really did it, they, they, they followed these lessons, they contemplated, they took the working tools home and really applied them. What, what, how would we notice, how would we know that person had achieved that or, or gained that insight? What would that ma true master mason be like? Well, I, I suspect that we've, um, we've all met one or two people who have had a profound influence upon us in, in the craft, who we would uh, look upon as great masters. I think it's it's difficult to express, isn't it, what that experience is. Is I mean, the mystical experience is something that that um, you know the great mystics of old have tried each of them to to express to us. I mean, William Blake, Vaughan, you know, the, these these people are obviously clearly discussing the same experience, but it's difficult to, um, you know, you've got to have the experience for yourself. And I, I'm not claiming to be a great mystic, but I suspect that most people who really try hard within Freemasonry and whatever other path they're on, because Freemasonry isn't exclusive. I mean, you can be a, a Freemason and a Christian, a Freemason, a Hindu, a Freemason, a Buddhist, can't you? So it's not an, an, an exclusive path. But you, you get to be a very calm individual, a very wise person, somebody who rises above the material things in life, somebody who can see the greater view, I think. I mean, I, I suspect you know what I mean, but I'm having difficulty putting it into words. Yes, and um, I think that question was a little bit naughty in the sense that you have said, to describe things beyond words, we have this complicated system uh, of this uh, of symbolism and allows us to interact with things which are uh, by their very nature indescribable. And I said, right, describe that for me. So, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear um, your thoughts. So that's the end of my questions. I have some more, but uh, I don't want to get in trouble for monopolizing. Uh, so, um, I can't see anyone with their hand up at the moment. I thought someone did a while back. Um, David, do you have any questions 
um, from the. Sorry, I muted my microphone, Martin. Yes, I have uh, quite a number of them in the chat, and uh, Russell was um, with the hand up, but I guess he left. So, well, well I'll, I'll pick up the questions from the chat then. Okay, the first question um, comes from Alexander Peter Popescu. And how do we achieve the common binding understanding of the symbols? Because symbols depend on context and connotations. So how do we achieve them, achieve uh, the understanding of the symbols? You need to unmute yourself, Tony. I enabled everyone's microphone, so that's why it, oh, kind of, it muted everyone. <laughs> okay, um, how does one understand the symbols? I, I think, I mean, really, the, my message today was that it's very common to dismantle and dissect a Masonic ceremony and look at individual symbols. But I think if you do that, and, and there are lots of books that will help you do that, but if you do that, you, you run the risk of, of not having an overview of this complete journey, this, this complete system and, and, and the things that it's trying to teach you. And so what I was trying to do today was step back from looking at the square or the skirt or the compasses and, and look at this basic journey, this, this pattern for development that's in these four basic ceremonies. I mean, I'm not saying that the higher degrees aren't of any value. That's not true at all. In fact, the greatest value for me in the higher degrees is that they show the validity of a deeper interpretation of Masonic ceremony. So if you, if you look at the Royal Order of Scotland, for example, you can't possibly believe that, that its message isn't much deeper than the words. And if you look at the Red Cross of Constantine in its appendant orders, I think, it tells you definitely there that a deeper meaning is intended in the craft and royal arch. It tells you specifically in the ritual. So, so I think it, it's fine to concentrate on individual symbols now and again, but I think you shouldn't lose sight of the whole message. I mean, I, I think, I've, I've often thought it would be quite nice to uh, hold um, a meeting of an esoteric type lodge, if you like, and just meditate on a single Masonic symbol for an hour. That would be quite an interesting thing to do. But today I was really looking at the whole, the whole of the basic journey. Like creative visualization, you mean? Just yeah. doing every, everyone in you have the one symbol to to reflect and meditate on exactly all right okay um another question that comes from uh, charles da costa how does freemasonry help you find god regardless of your religion well um for me and this is entirely personal um I, 
I don't really know how to do this without without discussing religion in a denominational way because of course I'm I'm a Church of England Christian but please please go ahead no problem with that we just don't proselytize any tradition okay. otherwise you can kind of share your religious okay. points yeah please do I think I'm about to do the opposite of proselytizing actually I mean <laughs> I, I I have a much different appreciation of my Christianity now than I had before I became a Freemason. In fact, I've, I've got to a point where I would differentiate between what I would call churchianity and actually what I believe the true message of the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament actually is. I mean, I think that, and this is only my view, but, uh, but I, I would look at uh, the story of Christ's life as very much an allegorical story, you know. I mean, I think Christ might well have been a political agitator, really. I mean, you don't go riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey at Passover unless you want to really cause a fuss. But, but the rest of the stories about, you know, the kingdom of God is within you and uh, love your neighbour as yourself. These, these are, are fundamental messages that... that I think Freemasonry highlights. So I think the two things come together, but the one may change the interpretation of the other. Okay, thank you. Um, and in that context, may I ask you my question as well? <clears throat> you mentioned during your presentation that uh, this is uh, why the belief in God is required, but you didn't go into details explaining why. You, were, you, were just, uh, you mentioned that in the context of explaining something else. So my question is actually um, how, how our declaration of belief in a God or God or supreme being uh, is, an, uh, is, a, uh, is of a paramount importance of our, for our membership or, or for whatever we will learn from, uh, from the rituals uh, even if we apply all the knowledge that you just shared, uh, after again reading your book as well, uh, you understand, you kind of uh, visualize what this might be a body of a person, but still, where is, why the belief in God or declaration of believing in, in God uh, is, uh, is such an, uh, such of such an importance for, uh, for a person? in a Freemasonic understanding, Freemasonic context? Well, I think the fundamental aim of Freemasonry is to teach you about the nature of yourself. And, and I think what Freemasonry is teaching me about myself with that symbol in the center of that room, which represents myself, is that, you know, I'm not just a biological system that's going to rot. I think there's something else going on. Now, I'm not necessarily um, convinced that I'm going to be physically resurrected at some point in the future. I honestly can't um, believe that. But, but I think it's telling us something fundamental about the nature of ourselves and our job I mean, the, 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 the Masonic ceremonies, the second and third degree, they kind of point us in the direction. But what I was keen to try and emphasize is they, that doesn't make it real for you. 
inside yourself, it doesn't make you feel that that is the truth. Just saying it or reading it or listening to it in the Masonic ceremonies even doesn't make it real for you. You have to make it real for yourself. You have to do this work for yourself. But if you don't believe that there's anything in there more than what's going to rot, then I can't see that the Masonic ceremonies have anything much to teach you, apart from the basic, you know, morality, charity, fellowship stuff. Okay, just, just to follow up there. Um, if the mechanics of what we do, mechanics, I mean the ceremony itself, moving around, there's everything that happens in, the, in a lot during the work, uh, kind of, of uh, has as an end result of knowing, of experiencing, as you said, as a mystic, uh, then it doesn't matter whether you believed in the beginning or you didn't, because oh, even no. yourself, you said that uh, after Freemasonry, your understanding or appreciation of Christianity was much uh, kind of uh, improved, you would say, and yeah. then it was prior. So. So my, my point is that even though I may not believe, shouldn't I get the same end result? Because the, that, 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 that whatever is hidden in, my, in me, in a, in a person, is still there, whether I believe it or not. As yeah. you mentioned, three uh, wise men, we never may have looked inside of us. We were searching for the outside. So I may, I may not believe that it is inside of me, but during the ceremony, I may find it out. So that's, that's, that's the context I'm asking for, the belief of God. Yes, yes, no, I, I think you're quite right. I thought you were going to ask me something different there, actually, um, I, um, which, which is quite hard, so I might try and answer it anyway. But um, yes, no, I, I think you're quite right. I think just because we, or, or those people who don't know it or feel it, 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 I think it's still true. I'm not saying that it's only true for people who believe it, I thought what you were going to ask me was, um, how do we achieve this knowledge for ourselves, for each of us? And I thought you were going to ask me perhaps about, you know, taking drugs or the near-death experience and so on. So That's also a very interesting dimension of it, of the near-death experiences, yeah. Well, it is, but, but actually those two things actually bother me because if you could get this experience when you're just about to die, that would imply to me that um, it might be an experience that a damaged or dying brain might generate and therefore couldn't be trusted. And similarly, if you can get that experience by taking DMT, dimethyltryptamine mm -hmm. or psilocybin, again, these are basically brain poisons. So <laughs> although it's fashionable to call them entheogenic drugs, these days, and, and I see that, you know, um, mainstream medicine's beginning to use them in the treatment of profound depression and so on. The very fact that what I would class as brain poisons can give you this experience actually slightly bothers me and makes me wonder about whether, you know, if I had the full-blown experience, I would trust it or not, but I, I don't know. <laughs> 
Well, okay. Um, thank you. Um, I'll take one more question, Martin, from the chat, and then we have a hand to go after. So, um, Brother Caleb is asking, uh, dear Brother Baker, thank you for your presentation. It was uh, well done, and I share your sentiments. I have a few practical questions. As a Masonic author, I am aware that uh, much of your writing uh, has been induced uh, by your rich Masonic experience, which is clear. It would be interesting to know and hear commentary on some of what you found to be the most helpful primary sources or citations when creating your book. What about these sources did, uh, did you most enjoy or assisted your work? Yes, well, um, um, I joined my, oh, I was initiated in my father's lodge, but two years after he died. And I, um, I inherited his um, Masonic regalia and, and a little shelf in, in his wardrobe. Um, I can remember the smell of old books when I opened it. And um, it, uh, it contained the books of, or several books of JSM Ward. And, um, and I've, I've, so he was my introduction, if you like, to, um, to a deeper interpretation of masonry. And, and I'm thinking about the basic degree handbooks, the Entered Apprentices Handbook, the Fellow Crafts Handbook, and the Master Masons Handbook, which actually are all available through Lewis Masonic at the moment. And uh, as well as that, W.L. Wilmshurst's two books, and interestingly, all of these are written in the early 1920s. So um, Wilmshurst's first book written in 1922 was The Meaning of Masonry, and that was followed up a year or two later by The Masonic Initiation. And both of those are easily available in, in modern reprints too. But actually, in my book, at the end, there's an appendix which um, lists and just comments on all the books that I've encountered that I think have been particularly helpful to me uh, in this sort of, in developing this view of, of Freemasonry. So, you know, Steinmetz's Hidden Meaning in Masonry and all, all sorts of them. There must be, I don't know, 20 or 30 such books listed at the end of my book. Thank you, Martin. Back to you. Your microphone is muted. Oops. Sorry about that, everyone. I I was forced into a state of being muted for a while. Uh, you can stop celebrating. Um, yes, a couple of things just to mention. Uh, Tony actually uh, edited a, uh, a book called A Interpretation of Our Masonic Symbols, which was, uh, is by Ward, a beautiful new edition. I've shared the, the link uh, there. I also wanted to mention something I, I forgot to, to say in uh, response, uh, Tony, you were talking about other groups that had moral plays and insights. I was rather surprised when Robert Cooper 
explain to me not just the three gardeners, which I understand still going in some small form, but he said there were a lot more, including there was the three fishmongers, and they actually had a a play and. Uh, I couldn't get more out of him about that. I had this sort of vision that it involved, you know, loaves and fishes or walking on water or something in there. But yeah, so other groups did have, have their own paths as well. I had a sudden view of that um, Monty Python sketch of the two guys on the quayside with fish. <laughs> See that. Um, so, Hasu, um, it's lovely that you're here and you're normally the first person to ask a question uh, on chat. So... Let's keep with that tradition. Well, never be the first and never be the last. It's always a good in between. Uh, Brother Tony, thank you very much for that. Uh, interesting, a very interesting perspective of what masonry is. Uh, as practiced, I suppose, within sort of United Grand Lodge uh, family. A couple of things that uh, are interesting. You mentioned uh, throughout your presentation, you were mentioning he, the male element of males being Freemasons. And the other, other part was also a belief in God. Now, as we all know, and we're from also many jurisdictions and many parts of the world, that there are many, many who follow that uh, tradition of very deep understanding of Freemasonry, yet they're neither male nor do they believe in God. How do you accommodate that within this sort of ideas that you are, uh, you are, you are uh, conveying at the moment? Well, well, I hope I've dealt with the belief in God part, but from the gender point of view, I, uh, the book, I, I, I may have slipped into uh, saying he here and there, but that's mainly to deprecate the messages that we're getting from the English male only United Grand Lodge of England. Mm -hmm. I absolutely appreciate that the lady Freemasons in, in England and the co-Masons have a much, much deeper appreciation of the meaning of our rituals and ceremonies than the United Grand Lodge of England Masons do. And, um, and in my book, I actually, although I hope it isn't obvious, I did a as much as I could to avoid using the pronoun he at all. I, I may have used he or she once, but mainly I've avoided the use of the pronoun at all by, you know, shuffling the words around and saying Freemasons do this. So I, I certainly am not speaking just to male-only Freemasons. I'm speaking to any Freemason. I mean, actually, I am an English male-only Freemason, and, uh, and I I have been accused of, you see, the, the, the problem is that I, I feel the ladies are distracting to me, you see. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I have been accused of being too immature to realise that their contributions to an esoteric system are, are very valuable. And, and, and that, that may be right. But, but what I, so, so at the moment in England, you can belong to the male-only variety you can belong to the female-only variety, and you can belong to the co-masons. And, and so, you know, the choice is, is, is yours. Well, I think the question on belief in God, uh, maybe is to clarify, what I'm trying to say is a, a total non-belief uh, belief in God. I, 
uh, and atheists. And there are many, many Masonic uh, bodies around the world who do not have that requirement. Yes. Uh, do you think that in modern age and today's times is the, the principle of humanity that is more relevant than the principle of religion? Um, well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not saying everybody has to believe in a God. I, I'm just saying that I, I think that, I mean, and, and in England, in, 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 in the United Grand Lodge of England, you still cannot be, um, become a Mason and, unless you believe in God. You're asked in whom you put your trust uh, as soon as you come into the Lodge for your first degree. And you are, of course, prompted to say in God. But I mean, you couldn't possibly give that answer in all honesty if you didn't believe in God, could you? Well, <laughs> I'm an English Mason as well. And I can say that many a times the question at interviews being prompted that just make sure you say that I believe in God. So, you know, it's a, it's a fine point, but it's very interesting to think that, you know, we do believe in God before you start in masonry, or do you then find God after you join masonry? Yes, absolutely. That's a, that's a very interesting statement, isn't it? I mean, I, I think people's concept of, of God is widely different. Mm -hmm. And I, I suspect, you know, e even a, well, a lot of atheists would probably find themselves appealing to God if they were drowning in the middle of a cold ocean. But, you know, I, I mean, you don't, I, I'm not saying you have to believe in an old man with a beard sitting on the clouds, you know, uh, and it, it's, it's very unlikely, isn't it, that God is anything like that. I mean, some of my brother Freemasons in, in, in one of my lodges particularly uh, believes in God as, I think, a collection of physics constants, really. I mean, I think um, <laughs> he doesn't believe in a will as such, I don't think. He, um, and some of you may know who I'm talking about, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think people's concepts of God are widely, widely different, mm -hmm. and, and they don't necessarily have to even involve a consciousness, I don't think. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the other thing that you mentioned is uh, near-death experience, is having had that experience, I'm I know what it is, what it is about it, what you feel and the sense of complete emptiness and you know just just uh, just of nothingness. So it's um and at that point of time you have no thoughts. There's nothing in your mind. It's completely empty. You know you don't start thinking of God. I'll come. There's nothingness. It's actually nothingness. You know it's like you know like uh, uh, the. Is that a pre uh, it, It's like a CGI green background, you know. <laughs> is, is that a, a pre-death experience or a post-death experience you're talking about now? Well, it was in a car crash, I mean, it's of a, a, moment, a moment when you are completely released from yourself. Yes. Well, yeah, yeah you see, I mean, I, th I think, um, yeah, when, when a baby is born, you know, and they're trying to make sense of, of the world, one of the, the first things they have to decide is where they stop, as it were, what parts of what they can perceive are them and what parts of what they're perceiving are the environment. So they, 
get used to the idea that they can move some things like their arms, you know, and they can touch some things that can't necessarily move. Do you know what I mean? And, and in a sense, the mystic is almost trying to unlearn that experience to become part of everything again, rather than separate himself from from creation as as you know as we all grow up and learn to do yes and so. thank you and uh, as always uh, freemason is like a beautiful cake whichever way you cut slice it'll taste so nice uh, enjoy it and be happy thank you very much thank you tony yeah i mean i think freemasonry is different things to different people and i think that's brilliant actually I, i'm not as i said right at the beginning i i really don't believe that my opinion is the only right opinion. In fact, one of the great things that I enjoy about lodge meetings is the opportunity to hear other people's views mm. and to embrace them with a kind of embracing, loving tolerance, not just a, oh yeah, I can put up with that, you know, it's not what I think, but I can cope with it. I mean, I think we should be trying to embrace each other's views and understand them. And that's a, that's a quality much admired, I think, just listening to you. I think you're, you're doing a good job with that. <laughs> I just want to let you hear this story. I was once at an interview with a Masonic candidate where they said to him, do you believe in a supreme being? And he stopped for a few moments and said, does a wave believe in the sea? And I thought that was magnificent. Mm. That was a wonderful answer. I don't think he'd quite realised that this was one of the required questions. But yeah, I thought that was beautiful. Mm. And later on, the same person said to me, well, I can see why you want a, a joined up vision of the world, that the whole all of existence is one, is needed, you know, for, as, a, as, a, as a, a, a standard. Yeah, and, uh, so that was it. Really, really interesting. I learned learned from that interview. Absolutely. We don't have any other hands up in our video area. Um, David, have you got anything on YouTube or Facebook or on the chat? Yes, we have a few more questions to go with. Uh, uh, so, uh, Brother Caleb um, is asking another question. Dear Brother Baker, before I became a Mason, my grandmother gave me the book A Pilgrim's Progress, a famous sort of uh, moral play by John uh, Bunyan uh, that, um, that was in vogue in England prior to and during the formation of the primary, uh, premier Grand Lodge. Is it, a, is it uh, plausible um, that this type of writing influenced Masonic ritual? Is it possible that some of uh, early Masons were involved in theater or actors, uh, uh, actors troops um, and guild, perhaps in at their church or local theaters? Again, thank you for your comments and presentations. So, what do you think? Yes, I think it's, um, it's very likely that works like Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress influenced the people who um, who set out to um, create or develop um, Freemasonry in the in the 17th century? Yes, certainly. And um, from the point of view of actors, I think I think the, certainly the mystery plays 
have had a profound influence on Masonic ritual. But I don't know about actors actually taking part, but, but certainly I think the mystery plays. The, the, the thing about Freemasonry is that there are strands of all sorts of things woven into the fabric of Freemasonry. You know, hermeticism, astrology, um, alchemy, these mystery plays, they're all sort of twisted together in, in Freemasonry. It's a wonderfully rich blend of all sorts of different traditions, it seems to me. Okay, thank you, Brother Calabis here with us. So if you want to, yeah, please. So I may I just add that um, to support what Tony says, I do believe that in the, the lectures, the um, the original Prester, um, the um, uh, emulation lectures, there are sections which can be identified as being very inspired by Paradise Lost by Milton. Hmm. Yeah, so it's most certain that these kind of allegorical tales were inspiring Masons. And, and I also believe that um, the, one of the Prestonian lectures, um, Trevor Stewart, he demonstrated that at least in London, the, um, the Masons from the 18th century were lending copies of philosophical texts to each other and having displays and talks on scientific matters and everything. So they were, this, this mixing pot was certainly turning. Yeah. Uh, sorry, David, do carry on. No, not at all. Um, okay. Um, there are a few more questions, uh, but can, may I put in my question here? Um, that is, you described the lodge as the body of a human and uh, uh, different degrees, and especially the royal arts, you said, indicate not only what to find, but where to find. So it's like uh, during, the, during the workings, you are given the hints where to find and what to find. So. Uh, my question is, uh, in this context of your lecture, uh, do, you, uh, do you think that uh, this is still symbolically transferring the knowledge through kind of allegories, telling you to find whatever you, whatever you should find and hinting you where to find it? Or do you think there is this um, a mystical, ex spiritual dimension during the work, during the lodge meeting, where you actually find something, or uh, you still have to work individually after the lodge. It kind of gives you instructions that you have to follow up somewhere else individually and uh, like try to, um, through meditation or whatever practice, look through uh, and look inside of you. So is it just a, a set of instructions given you in that form or is it really experiencing the thing? Yeah, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Masonry is probably the only system that I can think of where we go time and time again to see the same ceremony over and over again. You know, I'm sure the lodge is populated. The officers are different people each year. In a sense, the lodge is reincarnated at every installation ceremony. 
but but nonetheless it's the same ceremony isn't it and I suppose you might go and watch a Shakespeare play directed by different people with different actors but it isn't you know not not as often as we see an initiation a passing a raising and an exaltation and and I think that as I say I think that they the performance of the ceremony is it's sort of acting out a parable, if you like. So you are, it, it, is, it is a ceremonial external act representing real internal work. But as you do that work, each time you go back to the ceremony, it means that little bit more. It has that much more of an impact. You know, it, it's a bit like um, telling a joke really, you know, I, I probably shouldn't say this about my sister, but I remember when we were children, I used to tell my sister a joke and, you know, with five or six other people would fall about laughing and she would look puzzled and ask me to explain it. And then, you know, I would take it apart and explain why it was funny to her. And, and then it was no longer funny to me, but she would suddenly burst out laughing. And, and <laughs> It seems to me it's a, it's a bit like that. So every time you go to the ceremony and, and you know, it, it's sometimes it's the different way that one of the officers will pronounce the words or lay the emphasis in a sentence, but it, it suddenly makes you think, wow, you know, I hadn't really noticed that before. And it all gradually builds, you know, over time. So that the impact of a third degree ceremony, well performed for me now, is much greater than it was, you know, early on in my Masonic career. I must say it was profound. It was quite a profound experience of my own third degree. But, you know, 10 times later, it wasn't, you know, half as powerful as it, as it sometimes is now when it's well performed. Okay, so you still would, uh, uh, in this response, what I understood is it's more intellectual uh, experience, which is being built up, kind of finding in other nuances, or uh, experiencing, as you said, theater played out by different actors, but uh, not really spiritual. Well, again, personal understanding. I don't it's know. Hard I mean, sometimes to define these two, maybe, but uh, intellectual being kind of rational, uh, kind of a product of our thinking, while spiritual well, would be of our, from our I think, circle. I think the impact is is not just spiritual. I'm struggling for the right word. It maybe emotional is 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 the right word. I mean, it's a bit like music. You know, mm -hmm. music music goes right in there, doesn't it? you know, to your emotions. It can make you cry, can make you feel joy uh, without ever using a word at all. And I, I think that the impact of a symbolic and allegorical ceremony is like that. All the, all the sorts of bits, like a joke, have to come at you together for it to have its effect. But the effect isn't just intellectual, it's emotional and spiritual as well, I would say. Thank you. Uh, as we always do, uh, there are a few more questions. Uh, we've been around for two hours. Is that okay if we go another 15, 20 minutes? 
uh, well, speaker should confirm that. Uh, maybe... Oh yes, no, I, I, that's fine by me. I would just say that you know, in Bristol, they they wouldn't contemplate hearing me talk for more than twenty five minutes. So, <laughs> you've done you've done well to put put up with me for this long, really. <laughs> uh, we can go longer, <laughs> as long as long as. You can stay. Okay, uh, Charles. Well, I, I think David, sorry to interrupt, but I think we are known to extract blood from uh, stone. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> right. So, uh, Charles da Costa is asking um, this mystical level you speak of, could it be psychology? Yes, I, I think I think it is psychology, but a, but a bit more than psychology. I mean, it's almost about about consciousness as well. I mean, you know, I was I was a surgeon, so um, yeah, I've been retired six years now. But but my anaesthetist knew how to put my patients to sleep. You know, he knew how to switch consciousness off so that I could, you know, do what I had to do without hurting the patient. But if you asked him to define consciousness, he had no absolutely no idea of what consciousness is, and, I, and indeed, I don't think anybody does. So I think it's that kind of that kind of structure. I mean, when the um, when the rituals were composed or constructed, and actually I don't think they were actually composed or constructed really in the way that we have them now. I, I feel myself that they've developed uh, gradually, but but at that time when they were developing at their most rapid rate, shall we say there was no science of psychology as such. So I think a lot of what the structure of the lodge and the symbolic roles of the lodge officers represent is now a part of psychology for sure. And, and as I was saying earlier, you know, I think the symbology of dreams has quite a lot of similarities in uh, to to masonry in in terms of the symbolism of of buildings and cellars and balconies and staircases and so on so yeah i think a lot of psychology but perhaps a bit more okay answer statement another question is that uh, you mentioned you were <clears throat> explaining royal arts so the question is royal arts is the bridge to the spiritual god and the collective from the cell? I'm sorry, I, I missed so, that. So uh, the question is that Royal Arch, is Royal Arch the bridge to the spiritual uh, from oh. the self? Yes. You are explaining. Yeah, we often, we often hear, don't we, that, that um, the crafts about um, fellowship with our fellow men and the Royal Arch is about um, uh, reaching God. I, I don't quite see it as cleanly divided as that. As I hope I pointed out in my talk, I, I see deeply religious concepts in the second and third degree. So I think there are a lot of pointers in those two degrees towards the supreme being. And I think those are further developed. You learn more about the structure of yourself and where to find the lost secrets in the Royal Arch. But I, I don't think the bridge to the Godhead, as it were, is entirely in the Royal Arch, no. Not for okay. me. All right. 
Um, another question is uh, again from uh, uh, from uh, Charles. Uh, so, are you saying that masonry is agnostic approach to religious belief? Um, no, in in fact, um, I've, I've just seen a website that uh, suggested that many English Freemasons were agnostic. And personally, I, I would have thought that the United Grand Lodge of England requires more of a belief in the supreme being than an agnostic would normally confess, as it were. So, uh, no, I don't don't think it's agnostic. I, I would think that most Freemasons have some kind of religious background upon which their Freemasonry works, if you like, but um, but it doesn't have to be any particular religion at all. I mean, yeah, I think, yes. Okay, uh, just, uh, just a comment again from Charles. I think you, well, we see the depth but that depth is personal. We see masonry as preparation, not the end. Yeah, I, I, I think that, yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. Okay. Okay, I'm just trying to see if there are any other questions there. There are a number of uh, thank yous and uh, brilliant talk and excellent talk and interest to read the book. So there is the interesting comment I liked. Alexander Peter Popescu shared that great architect of the universe while we were discussing the, the belief in God, great architect of the universe, dreifach großen allmachtiger Baumeister alles Welten, the filling interpretation of the imagination and creation of the subjective individual illustration of the Grand Architect of the Universe means a supreme principle or a supreme being called God or not. So that was kind of, we were kind of trying to define the, what God was. So. I, I think we're in semantics here, aren't we? Um, mm -hmm. Really? Um, I'm, you know that? I, I, I'm not sure I, I would care to try to define the supreme being. I, I think that it's... Um, it's definitely something beyond me. I'm, I'm saying that, you know, there's more to all of this than me, that I think that I will be judged. Um, you know, my, my life and actions will be judged. Um, and, and I think, you know, most Masons probably believe that. They may believe that they're their own judge perhaps but but i i believe that there's something beyond me that created the the universe you know i mean i i i i understand the arguments that you know that, that you create the universe in your head and that everything that you perceive comes into your brain through your five senses but but for me you know i think therefore i am and as far as i can see there's quite a lot outside me that's beyond me. All right. Um, <clears throat> you uh, you mentioned the DMT part and the psychedelic uh, drugs. Uh, and that's, <laughs> yeah. that's one of the dimensions we had like four or five lectures 
Uh, we even uh, found the person in uh, Peru. It was, he was in, from Peru who, who who kind of shared the tradition from the very native uh, uh, perspective to us, and we had quite an interesting discussion. And uh, uh, while preparing for the and then trying to understand better this DMT stuff. I found a lot of uh, very scientific, very highly high profile um, psychologists and uh, representatives of different fields of medicine actually do huge international conferences last three, four, five years, I would say. It, uh, due to some restrictions in the United States, it was banned as a topic of research and it was kind of uh, put aside, but now it's kind of coming back and people are trying to explore it, especially uh, there, were, there have been some uh, real uh, practitioners who would kind of themselves try it, like med medical, uh, with the medical background, she and he tried to take the DMT and try to kind of generalize the patterns and stuff like that. So it is a huge, interesting topic, which seems to uh, kind of confirm whatever um, was uh, written by the author, I just forgot the name, but uh, the book, uh, his book is DMT, God's Molecule. It was one yeah. of the first uh, sort of the books. So yes. there you see this dimension, or at least what, what I would see is that is kind of a, a point where the material and spiritual kind of meet each other. Because um, uh, the described reality after taking DMT coincides quite a lot. It's not that David kind of uh, fantasizes on some things that he has experienced, or and uh, I don't know, Tony fantasizes from British perspective and also from other perspective. Whatever we describe after uh, after the uh, session, it is it has so much in common and uh, the patterns and the elements that appear there. So as a as scientist and, um, and uh, surgeon yourself, do you think there is this uh, room of uh, speculating that, yes, there is uh, some, sort of, uh, um, some sort of connection there with spirituality? It's not damaged brain or it is not a, uh, I don't know, uh, hallucinogenic, but that's why kind of they try to put it differently. So hmm. what's your personal perspective as a scientist on that part? Well, no, I, I appreciate what you say. And I mean, it's similar to what I tried to say in an answer to an earlier question. I mean, these drugs, DMT and psilocybin are, you know, they, they're called entheogenic drugs now because they kind of put God into you, as it were. They give you this appreciation of yourself as being part of the greater whole, as it were, part of creation. They merge you in, in the universe. And I, I do understand that. What I meant by being, my personally being worried about it, is that I don't think it's for me. But if it's for you, then I would recommend a book called Alchemically Stoned by P.D. Newman. I don't know whether you've read it, but it yes, relates yeah. this very much to masonry. I mean, he goes quite a lot further than I'd be happy with, but, uh, you know, in, in suggesting that actually 
the ceremonies were all based on taking hallucinogenic substances right back hundreds of years ago. Now, I find that hard to believe, but it's an interesting read and, and it puts very much the view that you're putting at the, at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yes, and actually, uh, we had the pleasure uh, to host him here uh, twice. Oh, uh, uh, yes, and uh, he actually wrote another book after that, um, um, Angels. Uh, it's a red book. I just uh, I'll, I'll share the title later on. Uh, and he, and in that book, he tackles actually acacia as being the uh, having these uh, patterns or uh, these elements that could kind of. Um, yeah. he, yes, he revive this understanding in us. So anyway, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, Brother Martin, I've, I've covered all the questions. And yes, we, we have got a hand up here and I think you can suspect who it is. Uh, Brother Hasu, please go ahead. So that is, it's very interesting you talk of uh, the use of substances to enhance your connections, which are very temporary from uh, my understanding, have never been in having never indulged in any of the stuff. But you know, I've, I find that I can still have that beautiful experience without any drugs, but you've got to put your mind to it. When you do it with your mind, it's a long-term experience. When you do it with drugs, it's only short-term. The, the euphoria wears off, and then you're back to your normal self, and then so still no better from uh, from being where you were when you started. So I think a lot of the times it is about not what you're searching for as such, but it's someone else's idea of using something, use this, and your search becomes better. That you experiment, but you know I think individuals are. But as you rightly said. Many have said that the past, uh, those who created Freemasonry must have been high on substance. But maybe they were because, you know, some of the medicate, some of the things they call medicine were not, very, <laughs> were not tried and tested on anyone except themselves. So I doubt, I'm not, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if they would. But yet they create, you know, they, give them credit, they created something which we still today sit here and talk about and uh, disagree about, disagree, you know, agree to disagree, basically, but yeah, yeah. great, thank you. May I just uh, add this on this exciting topic, um, my own observations. There are people who I greatly respect who have endorsed such substances as a catalyst to their self-improvement. I have not, as of yet, however, observed any upgrade or improvement that stays from any such experience. Likewise, in my explorations, there are many times in certain traditions I've met people who are clearly further along the path than I am, who I aspire to be like, more aware, more thoughtful, more skillful and compassionate. However, as of yet, I have not met anyone who has achieved such uh, evolution in consciousness through the use of these substances. Now, that's not to say that it's not possible, but that for me, it remains to be seen. It could be that there's a tradition uh, where 
uh, someone very wise and very skilled with this could, could aid you. Uh, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali certainly give this as one possible way you can achieve higher states of consciousness consistently. But what I've seen so far is that these substances are a good way to imitate spiritual experience. Uh, but I remain open-minded and non-judgmental. Uh, Kingston, uh, you have a question. Uh, please go ahead. Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, I think there's been a lot of work done on this subject. Apropos the endogenous substances produced in the brain in a near-death experience, is it not possible that this is the natural induction, if I can call it that, into the singularity that we're moving towards? And then another aspect, some people who have used psychedelic drugs report a mindset change for the better afterwards. Not always, but some do. Yes, I think that's, that's right. That's, I think that's why mainstream medicine is now taking an increasing interest in these substances for the treatment of severe depression, for instance. I mean, I think one would hope, wouldn't one, that, um, that the near-death experience is, is leading you on to a pleasant death experience. But the trouble is that once you've had the death experience, you don't tend to come back and tell anybody what you've experienced so it's hard to know but yeah i i, I remain optimistic there was just uh, one brief question uh, from uh, youtube is freemasonry uh, gary stodel is asking is uh, freemasonry a form of gnosticism you would say oh gary yes i know gary stodel i can't see him anywhere here, but yes um, uh, Gary Stodel has very, very similar views to, to my own. And um, yes, I think that the, that Freemasonry can achieve a degree of gnosis in, in some Freemasons who manage to embrace all the aspects of Freemasonry, the fellowship, the morality, the charity, and the something deeper, the brotherly love the relief and the truth. Yes, I think there's a degree of gnosis if you manage to put all that together. And I think that's what we should all be trying to do. Thank you. Uh, Brother Martin, I should report we're done, I think, with the questions here and we've been around uh, two hours and 20 minutes. So we might be thinking of closing this session or any final remark we wanna make. Certainly. I would like to say what an inspiration this has been for me, and I hope that it will be a spark of inspiration for everyone who's watched this. At the very least, I'm sure all of us will be viewing the temple as a symbol of a process of consciousness during the next ceremony we observe. Of course, the book is a manual to this kind of contemplation and uh, could be of great value for someone who wants to take this further. Uh, 
Tony, it's been an honor to hear you speak and to hear the answers to your questions. And everyone, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you very much. Tony, if you want to leave any final remarks, um, you're most welcome to do so. Just not for the participants only, but for the recording purposes, so for those who will be watching it. Well, I'd just uh, like to thank you for the invitation, uh, for making me feel so welcome, and for dealing with me so gently in the question time. There was a lot of brotherly love here this evening. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Brother Tony. <clears throat> it has been our honor to host you and the excellent, well-prepared subject. And definitely, I already got your book, which uh, is all my uh, with me now, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to go reading it. Um, as for uh, those who have been watching this on as a recording, I remind that today we had Legerea, the number six and uh, the topic of discussion was the freemasonry um, material moral and mystical and the speaker was the author of the book uh, brother tony baker so uh, once again i remind that legere alda is a <coughs> apologies uh, is a mutual project of sapere uh, and Louis masonic and uh, in latin it means dare to read so we <coughs> We ask you to dare to read, get the books and uh, find out more in details. So this concludes our lecture today. Today is 5th of December, uh, 2021. And uh, goodbye for now. Now, this, that's goodbye. Also in my native Georgian. <laughs>